please do open up your Bibles if you click them shut to that passage that's read for us from Genesis chapter 34. Uh, it's quite an overwhelming passage, and particularly one to finish our time looking at the life of Jacob. Uh, it seemed last week uh, that a real corner had been turned uh, in the dealings of God's people with God himself. Uh, and indeed, I think that still is the case. And yet it's confronting to see a passage like this one by so soon after. Uh, on your service sheets, there is a QR code at the bottom. Uh, if there are questions that you have uh, from things that I say today, from the passage itself, or indeed from the whole series uh, as a whole, can I invite you to, uh, to scan that, to send through those questions. Um, if there are particular ones that I think would be helpful for us to clarify or to think carefully about in response today, we'll see if we can do that in the service. But if there are broader ranging questions about the series as a whole, uh, we might see if we can answer those when we do our lunch together uh, following the service. And you'll hear more details about that um, if you're not up on what we're doing for lunch. Uh, we'd love you to join us. How about a break as we start? Our dearest Father, we thank you for the grace and mercy that you show to people like us, the faithfulness that you display to your promises. And yet, Father, sometimes we are overwhelmed at the character of people like us to whom you make. Father, we do ask, particularly as we reflect on today's passage, that we would understand ourselves truly and rightly, and that we would understand you truly and rightly, and that our despair at the former might not quite cloud our vision of who you are and how you act in that world. We ask this in Jesus' name, for the sake of our Building a family legacy can often come at an unjustifiably high cost. Perhaps to the members of the family itself, or even to those who are surrounding the family as they're charging ahead to build up chemistry and hang themselves. Uh, I was watching this show on TV, How's That? It's a mini-series several years back now uh, that charted the course of the Packer family as they built their legacy, primarily through uh, one day cricket franchise, but many other um, ventures as well. And it was sobering to note the cost that it took upon the family and those around their immediate circle for them to build the legacy that they did. But it's not just something that happens at a personal family level either, is it? It happens at a national level. It's sobering to reflect on how the Australian pastoral ministry is often built. The legacy of it was built upon the mistreatment of indigenous peoples and many others. Besides, the building of a legacy often comes at an enormous cost, either to the family themselves or to those within their orbit. And in today's passage, we see the legacy of God's promises beginning to pass from Jacob to his sons. And as the legacy of God's promises are passed into their hands, they'll see some remarkable growth 
to who they are as a family and as a nation. But it's a growth that is going to come at a different cost. Uh, and it would be nice to be able to avoid a passage like this one, finished on the high of Jacob wrestling, uh, limping, and enjoying the, the, the sun of God's peace on his back last week. And yet this is as true of God's people as last week's passage. Uh, have, a, have a look at me as we begin. Uh, we'll begin at chapter 34, verse 1. We read that after having settled in the city, near the city of Shechem in Canaan, uh, we don't know how much longer after they settled uh, these events transpired. 34, verse 1. Now Dinah, the daughter Leah had born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her and raped her. His heart was drawn to Dinah's daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father, Get me this girl as my wife. It is deeply troubling and unsettling to read a verse such as verse 2 next to a verse such as verse 3. To read verse 2 and 3 alongside. We often imagine that the line between warm people and wicked people is going to be clearly and neatly drawn for us. Yet, we often define the boundaries of rape far too narrowly if we imagine that only forceful assault is worthy of the name rape. The Bible's language on this front is far more expansive in what it identifies as violation of the laws. The word used for rape in this passage is a far broader word than just that which refers to violent or forceful behaviour. Whether the crown prince of Shechem wooed and propositioned Diana, Diana, sorry, whether he had seduced her or pressured her, whether he perhaps forcefully or violently took her, we don't know for sure. But he has certainly grievously wounded her, not least by virtue of his power and position as a prince of the area, as one of the ruling family, as those who had a whole city of people behind him. We'll read later that. Dinah continued to actually live with Shechem in his house as the deeply troubling events of this chapter continue to play out. Indeed, the, the word for taking someone is often used just as a synonym for marriage, as we'll see as the passage goes on. Indeed, Dinah's own brothers will willingly leave her living with Shechem while they negotiate and pursue their own. Rape is often not clearly acknowledged or treated for the wickedness that it really is. It's often overlooked, termed something else, understood in other ways. Uh, the situation perhaps recalls the behaviour of Pharaoh towards Abraham's wife, Sarah, uh, this is early on in Genesis, when Pharaoh took Abraham's wife, Sarah, for himself, an arrangement which shamefully resulted in great financial benefit coming Abraham's way, as favour was poured on him from Pharaoh, Abraham became rich and wealthy, making him complicit in his wife's horrific treatment. It's not a dissimilar situation we find in this passage. And this is a vulnerability that the Apostle Peter in the New Testament 
explicitly recognised and warned that women were still shaping the subject to that same kind of treatment in one day, just as is the case in ours. But the scriptures identify Shechem's actions here as rape, because however sincere his romantic affections were in verse 3, however sincere his desire to honour Dinah in marriage might be, as the passage progresses, the simple and horrific reality is that he has violated her, unjustly shamed her in the eyes of others. One of the more unsettling things about this passage is the way, especially Dinah, but even Jacob, are barely heard from. But this isn't because the scriptures are simply insensitive to or blind to their part of the story, to what they go through, especially what Dinah experienced. We're fast coming to the end of Jacob's story. We're really just in the last chapter of the end of it. And the writer of Genesis will increasingly direct our attention away from Jacob towards his sons, towards the sons who will give their own names to the tribes of Israel. Those men who are inheriting the legacy of God's promises given to Jacob and now being transferred to them. From here in Genesis, to the end of Genesis, it's about how those promises are transferred to them. So the attention is increasingly going to direct away from Jacob and towards the actions of his sons. And we see this shift of focus from Jacob to his sons already taking place in verse 5. Have a look there with me. Uh, verse 5 in chapter 34. When Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the field with his livestock, so he did nothing about it until they came home. Then Jacob's father, Hamor, went out to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. Jacob refrained from taking action until his sons returned home. As an elderly man, Jacob can scarcely take on the prince of the neighboring city by himself. He had to go band of 400 fighters, as we've seen in previous weeks, Esau had at his disposal. But as can be seen by the response in verse 7, the outrage of Jacob's sons is what takes the focus. Their outrage at these events snowballs so it's worth slowing down a moment to ask exactly what is motivating the outrage of Jacob's sons at this point. Is their concern actually Dinah's welfare? Or is it about something else? The sons, you might notice there from verse 7, seem far more outraged about the offence done to Jacob, to the family name than even Jacob himself is. It seems that they're far more shocked about Israel's honour being insulted than they are concerned about the Dinah's act of welfare. They don't even refer to Dinah by her name, she's just Jacob's daughter. And this should give us some pause before classing the outrage of Dinah's brothers as virtuous. We'll come and have a little bit more of a reflection on the nature of their in verse 6, we read that Shechem's father, the ruler of the area, Hamor, 
initiates contact with Jacob and Dinah's brothers uh, for some negotiations about where to live from here. Have a look at here for a second. But Hamor said to him, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it. Trade in it. Acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, Let me find favour in your eyes, and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like, and I'll pay whatever you ask me. Only give me the young woman as my wife. Uh, marriage was one of the very few recognised institutions that spanned nations and people groups at the times. Uh, there weren't the same kind of legal system set up, there weren't the same judges or courts, the same kind of political uh, alliances. The institution of marriage often shaped an area's politics. Marriage often shaped its economics, even its criminal, at least as much as it shaped the private life of household families. For Shechem, marriage is viewed as a means to legitimising his relationship, if you can call it that, with Dinah. For his father, Hamor, marriage presents an opportunity to legitimise an ongoing relationship between two entire communities of people. The outstanding question for us, of course, is what possible purpose could Dinah's family see for entertaining each other in such marriage negotiations or discussions? Uh, we'll see later on in the book of Exodus that Moses lays out how such marriage discussions might sometimes become a vehicle for passing judgment upon criminal behaviour. We don't think about that when we turn up at a wedding. We don't expect to see a wedding kind of maybe you know, mixed with a, a political or a legal judgment being handed down. But it was the case in the ancient world. Have a look at these verses that will be up on the screen from Exodus 22. There God's people are instructed. If a man seduces a virgin who is not pledged to be married and sleeps with her, he must pay the bride price, and she shall be his wife. Uh, remembering that the bride price was a price that went to the bride for her future security. He must pay the bride price, and she shall be his wife. If her father absolutely refuses to give her to him, he must still pay the bride price for virgins. The primary concern in this passage from Exodus is that the woman who has been wronged in any way has the full bright price paid to her. Such a payment would ensure that she is financially cared for and secure for the duration of her life. Now, she had offered to pay as big a bright price as was asked for him. But here in Exodus, these negotiations about bright prices do not necessarily imply that the marriage itself must always go ahead. Even where any potential marriage is understandably and outrightly refused, the full right of us is still to be paid as a matter of justice in recognition of the outrageous harm that had been done to it. Shechem had wished to legitimise his passions with Dinah, 
Hamor wished to legitimize a political and economic relationship between the two nations, the two groups of people. How would Jacob's sons approach these marriage discussions? As an opportunity to secure justice for Dinah or in some other way? Have a look with me at verse 13 uh, to 17 uh, as, the, as the negotiations continue. Uh, we read from this point on, Jacob disappears from the picture. Uh, it is Dinah's brothers who are taking responsibility for discussing and negotiating the way it took from here, verse 13. Uh, because their sister Dinah had been the father, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor. They said to them, We can't do something. We can't give our sister to a man who is not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. We will enter into an agreement with you on one condition. That you become like us by circumcising all your ladies. Then we will give you our daughters and take your daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you and become one people with you. But if you will not agree to be circumcised, take our sister and go. Jacob's sons had grown up in Laban's household, one member their uncle Laban. And it appears that they've learned a two more thing uh, from him about being deceptive for those undergoing circumcision, it was a sign that God would faithfully keep his promises to bless his people. That's what circumcision was. It was a sign that God, by his power, would secure blessing for his people. And Jacob's sons are using this very sign of circumcision in a way that implicates God in their deceptive promise-making and bargaining. You notice that in their agreement there with uh, the men of the city, Jacob, they barely even refer to Dinah, except pretty much as a bargaining chip. Jacob's sons are willing to leave Dinah with Shechem, thus actually legitimizing their marriage, should Shechem and Hamor agree to the terms involving circumcision, which they do. Jacob's brother, uh, Jacob's sons, sorry, are using their sister as a bargaining chip their own deceitful political and economic negotiations. And it seems that Dinah's welfare has not factored into their opportunity to be at all. They're effectively legitimised a marriage for what they have politically and economically received in return. Uh, in verses 18 to 24, we won't read it now, but Hamor and Shechem agree to this deal and they get all the men of their community to agree to the terms sent by Dinah's brother, that all of the men get circumcised. And of course, they can only do that by using the lure of political and economic gain to sweep the otherwise pretty unpalatable proposition. None of the rest of the men of the city are going to benefit from Shechem getting the bribe in the city's half one. And so this promise of political and economic gain is made to them, and they agree. But it becomes horribly and horrifically clear by verse 25, that Dinah's brothers have completely lost sight of how their dealings might actually benefit or secure justice for their sister, who they've left languishing in Shechem's own household. Now have a look at me in verse 25. After the men had agreed. 
bring as a surgical procedure to be circumcised, we read. Verse 25. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing they put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Jacob's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything. The same word used to, to, to describe Shechem's original taking of Dinah is now used to describe the brothers taking Dinah back. And in the process of do, so doing, they also took their swords and killed every man in the city. They carried off every woman and child that remained. They looted and they seized. Everything else remaining in the city, and in the fields, and in their homes. The taking back of Dinah from Shechem's house comes across as less than a genuine rescue, and more just another instance of the brothers' vengeful unity. God's people have multiplied enormously. In this one act. In perhaps it's actually the, the fastest percentage growth that most people have ever experienced. But how horrific the manner in which that has occurred. How different the manner in which the Lord Jesus builds God's people. Not by taking, but by giving himself. In contrast, it is deeply unacceptable. The manner by which God's people begin to grow and multiply. Is that what God had in mind? When he promised to Abraham back in chapter 12 that they would become a numerous people? Dinah herself receives nothing at all from these events as a consequence of her brother's scheming. Her honour is not restored. She receives no justice or financial restitution for the wrong that she suffered. The brothers simply take everything for themselves, just as Laban had taken and appropriated Leah and Rachel's bride price for himself. What started out looking like a brother's virtuous concern for Dinah and the family honour ends up simply endangering all the sons boldly claim to care most about. And have a look with me at verse 30 and 31. Uh, they were outraged that such a thing should be done to Jacob and Jacob's household, but it seems that they don't care much about that anymore. Have a look at me at verse 30. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number. If they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. They replied, Should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? 
It's been common to understand, and I think very understandable as well, uh, to see in this passage, in these verses, Jacob appearing a little self-focused in objecting to the son's brutal and barbaric actions. Now, it should be pointed out that I think it's actually Diamond's brothers who have treated her most as a prostitute. They are the ones who have traded her honour and dignity as a bargaining chip in order to both enrich themselves and carry off other women for themselves. But doesn't Jacob's concern about becoming obnoxious to the surrounding nations perhaps just seem a little bit self-absorbed and out of place? I mean, he does say me a lot of times in that brief little paragraph. You know, I'd like to suggest that whether Jacob really understood whether he knew it. He is rightly highlighting something crucial about Jacob's place in God's plan. Something that his sons have begun to undo and unravel. See, the last time that Jacob had been at Bethel, which is where Jacob's head next, God had made two promises to Jacob. I wonder if you remember them. They're up there on the screen. One he had promised Jacob, your descendants will be as numerous as the dust of the earth. And then secondly, all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your descendants. As Jacob's sons increasingly take responsibility for Jacob's legacy, for God's promises to him, they certainly have contributed to the numerical growth of God's people. They? They've certainly become, become much more numerous as they carried off captive all the women and children of Shechem. But Jacob's sons certainly haven't blessed anyone in the manner in which they've gone about it. Their actions have made Jacob's name not a blessing to the nations as God had promised, but a curse. By grasping after blessing and honour in their own strength, they ended up bringing curse and shame upon the name of Jacob, the very name through which God had promised to bless both them and all the nations around about them as well. Jacob's sons have set themselves up completely in opposition to what God had declared he would do in the of Jacob. Grasping after God's promises by our own means will prove not only futile, and needlessly frustrating, as we've seen the whole way through this account of Jacob's life. Wrestling to secure blessing in our own strength will prove not simply to be a needless and pointless striving exercise. It will also typically lead us down a path in which we find ourselves ultimately dishonouring the very name through whom God has promised to bless us. And it's as much a danger for us as it proved to be for Jacob's sons. So often, it's the name of the Lord Jesus that we dishonour in our own anxious grasping after what we fear God will not And I think that's why when Paul writes to the Thessalonian church, he highlights for them this prayer that he is constantly praying for them. The Apostle Paul writes, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his glory 
his choosing. And they fulfilled every result for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus might be glorified in you. Notice what Paul is praying there for them. He's praying that God might fulfill, bring to completion, every work of faith carried out by the Thessalonians by God's power. Not that God will fulfill their own strivings, that God will enable their own struggles to bring about blessing for themselves, but by their trusting in His power, God might bring about the end that He has foreseen. And Paul prays that they would have their faith in God's power to deliver, so that the name of Jesus might be glorified amongst them. When we struggle and strive to bring blessing to ourselves, we don't only weary ourselves, as Jacob has done over the course of his coming to terms with God's promises and blessing, we also threaten them to dishonour the very name through whom God promises to us. In our longing to possess God's promises, the temptation will always be proved to be, as it was for Jacob's sons, to grasp after them in our own family time. But such grasping is never behaving worthy of God's precious people. As was the case with Jacob's sons, such grasping will only end up making Jesus' name obnoxious for those who watch on as we struggle and wrestle and grasp after whatever seems to be close to Brother, brothers and sisters, it's by displaying faith in God's power to deliver his promises that Jesus' trustworthy name will be most honoured and glorified. And indeed, that is something that God's people struggle to do <coughs> throughout the rest of the Old Testament. It's something that God's people in the New Testament struggle to do. It's something that we ourselves struggle to do. So let's pray in our giving God's strength in mind. Lay aside our own grasping after what God has promised, and instead continue to place our faith in God's capacity to deliver on all that He has promised us through His Son. Let's pray. Dearest Father, there are so many seemingly good and delightful things that hold themselves out to us as a possibility in this life that you've given to us. Father, sometimes it seems as if blessing and honour are things that you've forgotten that you have promised to us. Father, forgive us for those times this past week, past year, where we imagine that perhaps you've forgotten that you've promised to live on those things and that we've begun to seek after them, to grasp after them in our own strength. Father, guard us against such foolishness, not only for our own sake, for the sake of our own peace of mind, but Father, Guide us from such behaviour so that we might dis not dishonour the name of the Lord Jesus in whom you promise to bring every blessing to fulfilment. 
was to place faith in him by your power. That we might not only achieve all the good things that you have promised to deliver, but that in the process, Jesus' name. Friends, we've decided uh, this morning